right, well, good morning. As always, great to see each and every one of you here today. Thank you so much, choir, orchestra, Shekinah. Uh, they, they're in the connect group already, but didn't they do an amazing job this morning? They can't hear you, but let's give them a round anyway. Let me begin my time as I did last week just with that reminder that uh, we uh, do have a general election on November the 8th, Tuesday, uh, but uh, you can still early vote. It's still open, I believe, for a few days, if I'm not mistaken. If you've not yet done so, I would encourage you to do so. But more than anything else, to exercise each and every one of us our privilege that we have to participate in the elections of our officials. Uh, it is right to do so. It's never been easier to uh, discover uh, what each candidate believes and what each amendment stands for. So please exercise that right and that privilege that each of you have. And in doing so, when you step into that booth, exercise your Christian values and worldview as well. And let that be what guides your decisions and your votes. And as I said last week, Never allow politics to overshadow your greatest calling, and that is your witness and your testimony to share and show the good news of Jesus to everyone. Let's try it again. To share and show the good news of Jesus to Again. No matter race. No matter color. No matter Politics, no matter party, that's right, amen, right? That is our primary concern and our primary role as believers. Now, with that said, um, kind of step in this morning and um, also don't forget to pray for all of our elected officials as well. It's always a good time in this season to be reminded that they need our prayers uh, and, and we need to be faithful to pray regardless if you voted for them or not. Uh, pray for them as your elected official. Now, I've often shared in the past that in my time of study and sermon preparation, I take what is known as a historical grammatical approach for, for interpretation, for interpreting the scriptures, uh, which just simply means a literal meaning of the text based on the original language and within the context uh, of the cultural setting at that time. And so what I'm looking for in doing so is the writer's original intent. Remember, because the Bible can't mean today what it didn't mean then. So it's very important to understand what was the writer saying then at that moment and that time. And then once we discover that, then we are able to answer those four questions we ask. What was the writer saying then? What's the writer saying to me now? What does, he, what does God want me to know with this information? And what does God want me to do with this information? And so within that hermeneutical process, if you will, what we believe is that it is Scripture that interprets Scripture, right? It, we, we, we learn what the Bible means from the Bible itself. Scripture interprets Scripture. So we look at each verse in the context of the entire Bible, right? Because the, the Word will never contradict or conflict itself. It can't do it, right? The Word of God will never contradict the Word of God. And so when we think we're in that place, then the issue is not in God's Word, but it's in our understanding or interpretation of God's Word. And really the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is one narrative, one love letter, if you will, to man. And that's the way we have to, to view it as well as one single narrative, telling the beautiful story of our sins and Jesus' saving of our sins. Amen? 
That's the story, right? Uh, and so that's where we look at it within context. Now, the opposite or the moderate approach would be a historical critical view, uh, which critiques and criticizes and, and often can lean into uh, a disbelief in the inerrancy or an infallibility of Scripture, and that's going farther than we need to today. But I'll, I'll remind us of 2 Timothy we looked at uh, just a few weeks ago, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Timothy wrote this, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's the, the purpose of Scripture is to continue to, to grow us and sanctify us. Jesus said this in Luke 21, 33, Heaven and earth, it will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The Word of God stands Forever, And so I want that kind of as our backdrop as we lean into our study this morning. We're continuing to walk through the New Testament together, our journey through the New Testament. And we find ourselves in our reading plan of week 44. You can find that in the bookmarks uh, or in the church amp this morning. Beginning on Tuesday, you will start your reading in 1 Peter, right? You're going to be uh, wrapping up uh, James on Monday, and then you're going to be stepping into 1 Peter. And it's interesting because 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 25, early on, Peter lays that out when he says, The word of the Lord endures forever. Friends, what was true then is true now in God's word, right? It is inerrant and it is infallible. It was always true and it always will be true regardless of what is happening in our world uh, or, or, or even uh, within ourselves, or our own family, God's word is still true. Now, as we jump into this, let me give you just a little bit of background. First Peter was obviously written by Peter. And I love Peter, the, the, the person that is, uh, because it's Peter who just kind of gives hope to every believer. You know what I mean? When you look at the life of Peter, he's that guy, he speaks before he thinks all the time, right? He's just kind of throwing it out there. There were times where he rebuked Jesus Christ. Knowing who he was, but Peter being the loudmouth he was, just couldn't stop. He couldn't help himself, right? And just, you know, throw it out there, right? And Jesus like, get behind me, Satan, right? That, that was Peter. And you know there had to be within the disciples those times when Jesus would say something. You know the, the other 11 were like, hey, let's see what Peter says. Right, like, you know he's going to do it, right? They're just watching, like, what's he going to say? Oh, there he, he did it, right? Uh, or, or maybe even try to throttle him back and say, oh, Peter, hey, you know, let, let, let's pull him aside. That, that was Peter. He had times about to, of anger. Yeah, do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane and Malchus, the high priest's servant, right? When, when they came to get Jesus, it, it was Peter who, who, who took out a sword and cut his ear off. Now, here's the thing. You know that joker ducked, which means Peter was aiming for the whole head. Right? He, he was wanting to behead the guy right there. Right? That, that was Peter. Right? I mean, he battled with anger. He blew it as a believer on multiple occasions. I mean, denying who Christ was or being a follower of Christ, even to a little girl. But it's in that life of Peter that I think so many of us can relate that we just seem like so often we speak before we think. Uh, we, we, we're prone to anger or, or we're prone to, uh, to, to, to even walk away from God at times. And so it's in that I think that I know I can certainly so relate to Peter. And, and yet it's Peter who God used in a miraculous way. Remember in, in Acts at Pentecost? Peter, hear this, uh, uneducated or slightly educated at best fisherman. It's called to, to preach that, that, that message at Pentecost and thousands of people are saved by hearing what comes from the mouth 
of Peter. Over and over again through, through, throughout Acts, we saw where he was the, the first missionary to the Gentiles. Remember, he had that vision, went to the home of Cornelius, and he was the first missionary to, to, to take the gospel beyond the Jews, the Jewish people. It was Peter who performed miracles, healing even the lame man. Peter, this, this uneducated, this loudmouth, this a man who was prone to anger, this one who even denied Christ, and yet God used him beautifully. So with that said, let's uh, open up this morning. I'll give you a, a, a couple other little things here you need to understand. Peter wrote 1 Peter literally just years before he himself would be martyred in Rome. In fact, it says to, get, to give you an idea of how sold out and committed that, that Peter was to Jesus Christ, when he was arrested very quickly, they told him, listen, you are going to be killed, right? We're, we're going we're to execute you for your faith because he would not now deny who Christ was. And so when he, he found out, when, when Peter learned his fate, they told him, you are going to be crucified like Jesus. Now, we don't have this in our scripture, in our Bible, but we have this from the antiquities. We learn this from the historical records. And then when Peter found out that, that he was going to be crucified as Jesus was, he made a request of those who were executing him. And he said, I do not deserve to die like my Savior. And so for Peter, they nailed him to a cross, but when they placed the cross in the ground, they did so upside down. Now, can you imagine being nailed to a cross, that being bad enough, and now being hung upside down, nailed to a cross? And yet, that was Peter, and that was the, the level now of his faith. And so as I, as I said, open your Bibles or the church app. If you've not yet done so, there's QR codes in the seat backs in front of you. A very easy way is just download that. In each message, I have all of our readings that we're going to be in. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, and I'm going to do my best to still end on time. And here's one of the reasons. Most people, when you get to 1 Peter, they want to kind of cherry pick it or parse it out. You know, like, ooh, I like that little statement right there. And so they pluck it out, and they, what's known as eisegetically, they, uh, they, they build a message around that, or they build a faith or belief around that single verse. So they either parse it out, or because of a lot of what Peter addresses in this letter, they walk away from it altogether. People just, they don't want to go there. You don't have a lot of devotional books just on 1 Peter. And so today, I neither want to avoid nor do I want to be selective, but I want to try to cover as much as possible. And to do so, I want to do so so that as you begin your reading this week, you will have that hermeneutical lens, if you will, to study the Scriptures and to see it within the context of the entire letter. So with that said, I'm going to begin in his opening. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, identifying himself right off the bat, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, let me just pause there in his opening statement of his letter. Peter wrote this letter, we learn at the close of this letter, in chapter 5 and verse 13, from Rome. Now, he references it, his location, as Babylon. And to kind of give you an idea about how bad things were, the reason they referred to Rome as Babylon so that when he wrote a letter or gave any information, if it were ever intercepted, uh, they were fearful 
That if the government found out they were talking against Rome, that they would immediately be arrested. And so he references Babylon, but he was actually in Rome. And it says that he is writing this to the, the chosen, those, those who are chosen. He's talking about believers, both Jewish and Gentile converts who had come to Christ. And I love the, the terminology, the, the verbiage he used there, those who are chosen. Friend, every believer yesterday, today, and forever, is chosen by God. Isn't that a beautiful... Listen, if you're here today and you feel like, like you, you are at that place to, uh, to respond to the gospel message and receive salvation, God is choosing you. If you're here today as a believer, there was a time in your life where God chose you. Jesus said this in John 15, 16, you did not choose me. But I chose you. I appointed you to, to go and to produce fruit, and that fruit should remain. God chose us, and he chose us for a purpose, and that is to bear fruit for him. But not only is he speaking to the, the chosen here, the believers, but also he says the exiles, those who are dispersed. Now, what you have to understand, they were living in a time of extreme persecution, Extreme persecution. I mean, this was on the cusp in the beginning of Nero's reign, right? So it was a very difficult time. They, they had been scattered out because uh, following the stoning of Stephen, they, they fled from Jerusalem into, into all directions. And so we see here that even under persecution, even facing all they were facing yet, that was still God's will. See, because what we look at is, oh, my goodness, how could they go through this? And, and sometimes people will go this far. How could a loving God allow persecution? I mean, if God loves you, how could you go through that? Why could that happen to you? Why, why do Christians still get sick like everyone else? Right? And so we think, hey, when we, we try to rectify that. How can that possibly be God's will? But, you know, we get the privilege to look back 2,000 years and where persecution rang out just because believe, people were calling on the name of Jesus, right? What did the persecution do? It scattered, right? It scattered the people out. And what did that do for the gospel? It took it to places they would have never gone otherwise. They would have stayed right there in Jerusalem. They would have built a nation for themselves, a Christian nation, if you will. But instead, God's will was for them to be under persecution so that his message could be carried out to all the lands. According to both Open Doors and the ERLC, I did a little research this week. Christianity is the world's single most persecuted religion in 2022. Being a Christian... A believer today in our world, it is the most persecuted religion of all. In fact, over the past year, there have been nearly 6,000 Christians killed simply for their faith in Christ. 6,000 people who, just like so many of us, said, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And for making that claim because of where they live, they were killed executed. Over 5,000 churches this past year have been attacked and most of those completely destroyed. Why? Because of the name of Jesus Christ. More than 6,000 believers have been arrested without any trial simply for making the claim of Christ. And nearly 4,000 Christians have been abducted, kidnapped, if you will, 
all because of their faith. Friends, it's still alive today. Persecution still exists today. And now so much of that is comprised in Afghanistan, Nigeria, North Korea. But it's there. It's still in our world. And the early church, they understood that persecution. And there are brothers and sisters around the globe today that they understand this level of persecution. But there's not many of us. Now, I don't want to, hey, listen, I know we face persecution. I understand that. And there may be some in this room because I've heard some of the testimonies where you have faced this kind of persecution. I understand that. But for the most part, we use the same word but with a different vocabulary. You hear me? We throw persecution around, but it's nothing like what the early church. It's nothing like so many of our brothers and sisters face around the world today. Again, not to minimize, but understand we use that word, but it carries a very different meaning. Most of us, our persecution is we experience maybe our preferences or possibly even our liberties being maybe pushed on a little bit or, or possibly even suppressed in the workplace and others. And, but listen, what we have to be aware of is be on guard because what we still see in the world today can happen in America too. It can. Take, take heed lest you fall. It can happen even here. We have to be on guard. But we also need to be in prayer and acknowledge that it is still happening. This isn't just a New Testament principle. It's still happening in the world today. And we need to pray for our brothers and sisters overseas. We, we need to pray for our missionaries overseas who are on those front lines. It's still real. But what Peter says is he's writing to these people who are in the midst of a persecution that we can't possibly fathom. Here's, here's the crest of the letter. You ready? There is hope in persecution. And repeated, you're going to see that throughout all the pages of his letter. There is hope even in your persecution. Let's keep reading. First uh, Peter chapter 2, picking up in the second part of verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. He, he's referencing the loss there, and, and I throw that in there because we're going to begin in verse 9. But you, unlike the lost, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, Peter continues, and he uses that word race there, and the Greek word there, which we would say genos, the, the, truly it's genos, uh, if you pronounce it correctly. Uh, but genos, where we get our word genealogy today, where it talks about uh, even a species or a family unit. And again, he's repeating that idea that, listen, all believers are one family in Christ. We are all adopted children of God. We are children of the King. Royalty. And Peter says, whatever you do, don't forget it. Don't forget who your daddy is. Don't forget that you are a royal priesthood. He continues in verse 11, dear friends, I urge you then, as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they, slander, when they do slander you, he didn't say so if, but when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God 
on the day he visits. And I love that. Here in the midst of this, in the midst of persecution, he says, you're strangers. Not only were they foreigners, not only were they coming from another land to where they were when they would receive this letter, but he was saying this, you're different. (laughs) You're strange to the people where you are. You're weirdos. And by the way, can I tell you something? I say this frequently, but I don't think we really get, get, get a grasp of it. So many of us still believe and live as though we believe this, that Murfreesboro, Tennessee is the buckle of the Bible belt. And there was a time when that was a true statement. But folks, it ain't true anymore. There's there's no truth to that. In fact, in the latest census, I believe it was 2019, only 40% of Rutherford County consider themselves religious. 40% in the word religious meaning any religious affiliation whatsoever, evangelical or Muslim or anything in between. If you consider yourself religious, then you're in that category, and that's only 40%. The other 60, Rutherford County, the other 60% are nuns with an O, not a U, N-O-N-E-S, meaning they have no religion whatsoever. Murphy's brought that was 2019. Guys, do you think it's gotten better? I don't either. <laughs> Can I tell you something? You're strange too. You're a minority. You're strange. To, to, to live as Christ, it's weird. It's different in the workplace. It's different in the school. It's different in your neighborhood, right? You're a minority and you are a stranger. And so Peter says, so, so realizing that, then live above reproach. Live above reproach. Look what he says. They're going to persecute you, but don't fall into it. Don't let them drag you into their mud. I said several weeks ago, I think, that you know, if you wrestle with a pig, you'll both get muddy, but the pig will like it, right? So don't go there. That's what Peter said. Live above reproach. Live in such a way that even if they persecute you, even if they slander you, They've got no evidence. They've got nothing behind it. Don't let you drag them to where they, you where they are. And let me say this too. Your greatest evangelism is exactly what Peter's saying here. Your greatest evangelism, it's not faith, it's not grow evangelism, it's not the three circles. Those are all great tools to have in your toolbox, lures in your tackle box, however you want to say it. But your greatest evangelism is living right. Living right, that's what Peter's saying. Not only will it silence the criticism, but he says it'll go farther than that. It will actually draw them to God. It will draw them to God. Not when he returns, but when they are chosen. When they come to understand who God is, it will be because of your good works in their sight. Jesus said, let your light shine before men. Why? So through us, they can see him. And I think too many of us are hiding it. We're covering it up. We're not being the light that Jesus has called us to be. Let's keep reading verse 13. Submit then to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, 
not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. He says, listen, look what, look what he's saying there so far just in this letter. We're to live as believers, as followers of Christ, as royal priesthood. Right? We're to live as strangers, citizens, and slaves. Do you see that? Strangers, citizens, and slaves. Well, sign me up. I want to be a believer, right? That doesn't sound like a very good gig, does it? But that's exactly what he is. You know what he's saying? There's no entitlement for the believer. Don't use what you have as an entitlement, right? There's no entitlement for any believer. And so he begins to, to flesh this out. And what you're going to see in 1 Peter is he deals with two very difficult words, two difficult subjects for today, submission and suffering. As soon as I say the word submission and suffering, you, you start to get tense. Right? We, we don't want to talk about those things. Nobody wants that. And he, and he first dives into this, this idea of submission, right, which has always been a very difficult subject. But today, man, it's incomprehensible. It, it's damaging for someone to, to be submissive, right? That's the way we view it today. And, folks, that's not true. And it's the opposite of God's will. Submission is simply the act of setting aside your desires and your needs for the desires of someone else or the needs of someone else. Simply this, loving someone else even more than you love yourself. That's what, that's what submission is. And as citizens, he says we should submit even to the government. Hey, for them, the government that hated them. Now, I know you may say, I'm not sure our government likes us too much. I wouldn't disagree, all right, for the most part. But you can't comprehend what they were doing. Their government hated them. This government was going to kill Peter here in just a few years after writing this letter for being a believer. I mean, you think we got it bad. This was the beginning of Nero. He's the one that, uh, that invented Christian candlesticks. You know, you take a pole, you wrap a Christian around it, tie them up, douse them with oil, and light it on fire to give light to your parties. You think we've got it bad. And yet Peter says, submit even to them. Because here's what he said. Even though you're now royalty, you're an adopted child of the king with a capital K, that's who you are, live as though you're above no one. You know what you've got, but live as though you don't. You know, it's that time of year again, and y'all know it's coming, and you know I'm going to say it at some point, right? It's just that time of year, right? There's those certain TV shows that are out right now. And my wife's already watching because our house is decorated for Christmas, right? And it's, you know, it's three plots that are spun in a hundred different ways by four different character actors, right, and actresses, right? It's, it's those same three things. They, it used to be the Hallmark Channel. Now there's, there's, a, there's a new one, Great American Family Channel. They have better values that the Hallmark Channel threw out. Check it out. Uh, but, well, I don't know why you'd want to watch them anyway. But, uh, but anyway, there, there, there's those three plots, right? Either somebody saving a town and saving Christmas, right? That, that, that's one of the plots. Um, or... They're meeting their perfect mate, likely while they're saving Christmas in possibly a town. Or the third one is, there's a person who's actually royalty, a prince or a princess, but somehow they got stuck in this tiny little Norman Rockefeller town, right? Uh, and they now are living as a normal person, 
and they will likely meet the perfect person and save Christmas, right? I mean, that, that's your three. But in that third one, I, I want to kind of lean into that for just a moment because I, I think we're all there and we can relate to this, right? There, there, there's that, that plot that there's that prince or princess, right? And they know that they have a kingdom to go by, but they haven't told anybody. It's a secret, right? They don't want to know. They don't want anybody to know. They're going to fall in love, and the person's going to find out. That's happening at the end of the show, I guarantee you, right? But they have royalty. They know at any moment they have a kingdom waiting. Whatever's happening, they're not really overly affected by it because they've got a kingdom to go to. They've got the protection of the king, right? They don't have to worry about anything. Money's not an issue to them, right? Nothing is an issue. And yet, for this moment in time, they're living in this little town with people as though they're just a common Jane or Joe, right? And they're doing menial tasks that a prince or princess would never do or even be requested of them, right? And yet, they're doing it all the while. They're taking orders from people that, that should be their servants. And yet, they live as though they're one, one of them. All the while, knowing what's waiting for them. That's what Peter says. He says, yeah, live like that. Live like, you know what you got waiting. We know the kingdom that's waiting for us. We know that we're a royal priesthood. But in the midst of that, he says, live as though you are God's slave and equal to everyone else. He says, because by the way, you are God's slave. And that is how we should live. He continues, verse 18. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor, excuse me, for it brings favor if, because of a conscience of God, someone endures grief or suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. Now, now let me lean into this for just a second. That, that idea that that household slave really is speaking into to servants. What you have to understand, in biblical times, there was no middle class. Now, then that came much later. You had servants and slaves and you had aristocrats, and there really wasn't a large class in between, right? So that was very common, right? And, and if your master here in this situation is not a believer, remember we looked at the, the book of Philemon, who was a believer, but if he's not a believer, what he's saying is, don't give them a reason to hurt you. No, don't give them any reason for that. And by the way, if he unjustly does, God's got you covered. God's got this. God, God's looking down. He knows if you did something that deserved punishment. He knows if you didn't. And in those cases where you didn't, just lean on God. He's got this. That's where your faith shines. That, that's where you trust in his sovereignty. Makes no excuses, by the way, for the uh, atrocities of slavery in America. That's not this. This was a job. This was a career path. To be a servant or a slave at this time, that was common for people to do. Let's keep reading. Verse 21 then. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you 
had been filled. Peter, Peter said this, listen, consider, just in the midst of whatever's happening in your life, consider Jesus. He submitted and he suffered. He was the prince of princes and yet he submitted to this world. He suffered in this world. Why? Because of his love for you, for his love for me. He both submitted and suffered for us. And that's the lens we look at as we look into our world, what God did for us. Now, we've got to be willing to do for him. Chapter 3, the first two verses, in the same way, on that same line of thought. Wives, submit to your husband as your own, excuse me, wives yourselves. Let me start over, right? 1 Peter 3, verse 1. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure and reverent lives. Now, got quiet in here, didn't it? Right? I even stuttered reading it. Look what he's saying here. It's, listen, ladies, submission is a choice, a choice that you make because of the love you have for God. That, that's what submission is. It's a choice you make because of how much you love God. And additionally, the Bible clearly teaches that both men and women are equally created in the image of God. There is no, no difference. We are equal in God's eyes. We are equally, equally created but with unique roles and responsibilities. So we were equal in his lives. And finally, submission shows a love for your husband, that you desire him to either come to know God if you're married to an unbeliever, which you shouldn't be, but if you did, right? That, that, that's the desire that by seeing you and seeing Christ in you, he will be drawn to Christ. Or if you are married to a believer, that because of your love, because of your submission, he will further love God and submit his life to God. That, that's what he said. That, that's the whole point. Your submission will undergird his submission to God. And the two shall become one flesh. That's the picture. That's how God created man and woman. That's the, the roles that he has given us with an equal love for all. He continues then to the husbands. Verse 7. Husbands, in the same way. Live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. See, now he talks to men. Right? And men are so quick to say, I'll die for my wife. I'll get in a fight. I'll take a bullet for her. But those same men won't take out the trash or listen to her. Huh? Huh? Ladies, if I can't get an amen out of that, I, I, I don't know. Flying solo up here. It's true. We're so quiet. Hey, we'll die for you. But Peter says, live for her. Don't just be willing to die, but be willing to, to live for her. And when it talks about the weaker partner too, understand that it's talking about a physical weakness, not spiritually or in any other way. It's like that picture we've seen uh, all over the news here recently, that transgender volleyball player that shouldn't be out there with women and right, spikes a ball, uh, knocks a woman out on the floor. Why? Because men are built physically different than women. I don't care what they think they are. It's how we're born is what we are. I'm, I'm getting off on that, right? Now, they're physically weaker, not spiritually, not mentally. In fact, he goes on and says we're, we're co-heirs. 
We, we, we are co-heirs. We, we, we are equal heirs to all that God has for us. In this day, a woman's ability to earn a living was, was very limited. There, there, there were few things that a woman could do. I mean, it was, it was very small, so it was very important for husbands to, to provide for their wives. And so what he's saying is submit to the authority of God, but also to the needs of your wife. That's why he said we should honor her. We can submit to both. Listen, marriage, I'll say it all the time, it's not 50-50. It's 100-100. You give all you got for the other one, and in return, the other should give all they've got for you. And notice his point in this. What was he driving at for the men? To lead in prayer. To lead in prayer, right? Too many men, last time they took a knee in front of their wife was to propose, and not since. Right? Too many men do not lead in prayer in the home. Can I tell you something? I don't care what age you are. I don't care how much hair you have on your head. Do you know the most attractive feature on your entire body? Top of that head. I don't care how old or how young, how long you've been married. The most attractive feature to a godly wife is the top of your head. And I want to tell you, brothers, listen, when she sees you down, when you're holding hands, when you are praying together, you'll never be more attractive to her than that moment. I promise you. That's what your wife desires from you. I mean, we got to be willing to humble ourselves before a holy God and with our spouse and pray. See, to, to, to pray to God, we have to come to that place where we admit, God, I don't have it all. I don't have it all figured out, and I need you. I'm over time, and i got a lot to read. First Peter chapter 3, he continues, Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you're blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage you, your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once and for all, the righteousness for the unrighteousness that he might bring you to God. And I'm going to stop there. He continues on talking about how Christ willingly suffered for us. Hey, parents know this. The worst thing in the world you can do raising your children is never allow them to suffer. Right? Right? The worst thing you can do is coddle them in such a way that you never allow them to suffer. Why? Because that's one of their greatest teachers, and the world is going to have suffering in it, and they would better learn how to deal with it in your home before they're on their own. We allow our children to suffer. Why? Because we love them. Well, sometimes a loving God will allow us to suffer. Why? So we can grow in our walk with Him. Remember a couple weeks ago I said that everyone has faith in something. And the challenge I had for you is I encourage you to, to question whether or not the object of your faith can withstand the weight of your faith. Well, you know the thing about suffering? It's going to expose what you have faith in. You're going to lean into and you're going to turn to whatever it is you have your faith in when you suffer. Paul said in Philippians 3.10, I want to share in Christ's sufferings. Can you imagine being in such a walk, Lord, that you desire to suffer as Christ suffered so you can live more like him? See, trials will reveal the genuineness of your faith. 
Submission and suffering. It's tough. I understand that. They're unnatural and despised in our world today. But in these days, they were badges of honor in the early church. And they remain the fundamental distinctives of the Christian faith even today. Northside, listen, be willing to submit to God, to submit to His will over your own, and be willing to suffer even for His name's sake. Why? Because He submitted for you, and He suffered for you. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank You for Your willingness to submit to this world for your love for us. Even to to, to surrender all that you had for our sake to suffer for us. God, we pray for those around the world today, our missionaries and and those who are in difficult places, believers who, who have made that choice even knowing that they will suffer for your name. God, we lift them up and pray that you will empower them, protect them, and use them. God, for each and every person here, God, may may those who are outside of Christ, may, may they call out in this moment and say, God, I want to be one of your chosen. And for the believers that are here today, God, may, may we walk in submission to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name.